Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet's good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm really aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat. So why don't you get them to join you and work your way through the Word Diet. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the books of First and Second Thessalonians, letters to new believers facing various problems. But the most notable was that their view of the end times was leading them to treat work and income far too casually. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now we're in 1 Thessalonians 4. We finish the first section, verses 1 through 12. After the opening two verses, Paul emphasizes the two creation gifts from Genesis 2, sex and marriage and work. In covering those in verses 3 through 12, the idea there for us, I think, is to get those right. If we get relationships and our work right, life will largely fall into place from there. So that takes us to part two of Paul's exhortation in 1 Thessalonians, and that's a passage that runs from chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11. So we're going to discuss what's called the rapture from chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. We'll take the first part of that passage to begin our discussion today. Verses 13 and 14, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So first notice that he starts again with the wording brothers. Again, he's trying to encourage them, and he's not bothered at all by their confusion here. Well, of course, he wants the confusion to go away, but it's not irritating him. He's not kicking them out of the family for their troubles here. He calls them brothers to open. He wants them to avoid ignorance and or despair and grieving about death. Falling asleep is a euphemism here for Christians who have died. We'll talk more about that later, but for now... Notice that's what Jesus says about Jairus' daughter in Mark 5, 39. It's what's said about Lazarus in John 11, 11 through 14. And here, back in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes that God will bring with Jesus those who have died or fallen asleep. So this seems to be spawned by their misperception that all Christians would live until Christ's return, or that those who died beforehand would be missing out on something. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, Paul refers to some of this as a mystery. So there are some unknowns here, and the Thessalonians are a bit confused about some of this, and Paul revisits their concerns in these questions. Barclay says, Paul lays down a great principle. The man who has lived and died in Christ is still in Christ, even in death, and will rise in him. Between Christ and the man who loves him, there is a relationship which nothing can break, a relationship which overpasses death, because Christ died and rose again, so the man who is one with Christ will rise again. Now, there's the normal grief and the typical questions about death and the unknowns of it, and so one can imagine the anxiety here if you're misinformed 
about what's going to happen. You think you have salvation. Maybe you lost it. You missed Jesus when he came. You can see why these new Christians would be disturbed by this. I think it's also interesting that Paul talks here about wanting them to avoid ignorance. And Paul has a general antipathy towards ignorance, both of his personal circumstances. He wanted people to draw reasonable inferences. And he also says it with respect to theology in four other places. So Paul is not a big fan of ignorance and wants it to be dispelled. And we see that in action in this passage as well. Stott says, Paul traces many problems of Christian faith and life to ignorance and regards knowledge as the key to many blessings. Think about how often Paul refers to the life of the mind as crucial to the Christian faith. In verse 13, there's an interesting phrase, grieving like those who have no hope. Now, Paul is not arguing against grieving per se. It's grieving with no hope. And so, again, there's some sort of excessive grief which is connected to ignorance that Paul is trying to combat here. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 58 is a classic passage on this. Paul writes at the end of that great chapter, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So Paul does two things in that great passage. First of all, dealing with the uncertainties of death. And then notice that he uses it at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 to motivate their work and their courage in the kingdom. At the end, it says, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so the Thessalonians were really having trouble with both parts of this. They were fearing death and they weren't engaging in work as they should have appropriately. Stott says here, he aims to stimulate their Christian hope by developing the theology on which it rests. This hope is the confident expectation of the parousia, the return of Christ. And so it's important to handle any sort of difficult circumstance as well, but maybe especially death. And it's for ourselves, but also with respect to evangelism. Finally, let's come back to the idea of death as sleep, the euphemism that Paul uses here. Perhaps it's because death is used so often and figuratively elsewhere. Paul writes, for example, about being dead to sin, dying to self, and so on. And so maybe he doesn't want there to be confusion and uses the euphemism. Maybe Paul is trying to distance the concept of physical death from the spiritual deaths that he refers to in other contexts. Or maybe he just likes the picture of it. Sleep implies rest after our labors. It is a temporary state to be followed by an awakening, which would be the resurrection in our case. Daniel 12.2 says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. It's interesting along the same lines that the word for cemetery is derived from a Greek word meaning a sleeping place. And so the idea of death and sleep has a long history. But this is not soul sleep, some intermediate unconscious stage in paradise. Instead, it's what Randy Alcorn calls intermediate heaven. It's not quite the full thing that's reserved for heaven, but it's what the scriptures call paradise. Think of Luke 23, 43, Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Same language that Jesus uses with the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. 
Jesus alludes to the same sort of thing in John 14, 3, when he tells the disciples, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Or Philippians 1, 20 through 24, Paul writes, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. So again, Paul's saying, no, we get to be with Christ as soon as we die. It's not quite heaven, according to the scriptures. I talk about this in earlier episodes of the word died, particularly when I talk about heaven in the book of Revelation. But paradise is still a close, intimate relationship with God, very personal, not the soul sleep idea of some pagan religions. And notice that the phrasing here is sleep in Christ. We're not sleeping elsewhere. We're not sleeping alone. It implies intimacy, being cradled in his protection and care but it is sleep in him. We have a belief that Christ was resurrected and thus the belief that Christ will return with those who have died in him. And it's not only the foundation of the religion, but also of our hope in the resurrection. Paul talks about this earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 through 20. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. All right, let's take a break here. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we started into the key passage on the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, and we covered verses 13 and 14 in the previous segment. That takes us to verses 15 through 18, where Paul writes, According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So let's start by summarizing the order of events in verses 15 through 17. Those who are alive will not precede those who have died when Christ comes. So verse 16, second half says the dead in Christ will rise first. Then verse 17, after that, those who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air to be with Christ forever. Reminds me of Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's cover some miscellaneous things first about the passage. Verse 15 opens up with, according to the Lord's own word. So this is not recorded in the Gospels, unless it's a paraphrase of Matthew 24, 31, where Jesus says, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So there's obviously some parallels there. Some take this to be a close paraphrase of that. And so that means that the Lord did provide this word when he was on earth. Others don't quite see it that way. 
If it's not from Jesus, then what does Paul mean? Well, it could be a direct revelation to Paul or to others. And we see evidence of this sort of thing in Acts 20, verse 35. Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11, and 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14. In any case, it probably indicates something Paul had not told them earlier. Verse 16 is interesting. There's three phrases here. With a loud command... John 5, 28, Jesus says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. So the loud command there, Jesus seems to describe. The second phrase is with the voice of the archangel, probably Michael, reference there to Daniel 12. And then the third phrase, with the trumpet call of God. And there's debate here on whether these are three separate noises in short order, or whether these are three figurative statements of the same event. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, Paul writes, In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So maybe it's three different noises, or maybe these are just three different ways of describing the same event. One of the punchlines here, of course, is it's not going to be a secret. And then some interesting wording in verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, down from heaven, and then verse 17, caught up. And so the picture we're given here is the descending Christ meets his ascending saints. So some other larger details of importance. Verse 15, the word coming is the Greek word I've been using for a couple of segments now, parousia, and it implies the coming of a hidden deity and or a visit from a person of the highest rank. And both of those are fitting here. Verse 17, meet the Lord is the Greek word apentesis, which means accompanying the leader on the next or last leg of a trip, and that follows the parousia. So Christ comes, and then we follow him out on the last leg of our trip, so to speak. In verse 17, the words caught up is from the Latin repere or repturo and the Greek harpazo, both of which denote a sudden and violent movement. It's actually the same word that's used in Acts 23.10, describing an event with Paul. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. That phrase, take him away by force, is the same as is used here. For that reason, it may imply saving them from the situation. Again, this is way too much information to go into in this context. I cover this in Word Diet episode number 22. But this is the view of the pre-trib, pre-mill folks that uh, the church is raptured out before the difficulties begin. Then again, Paul does go through some trouble there in Acts 23, so maybe this is better associated with the mid-trib, pre-mill view. Verse 17 has a reference to clouds. We see that in Daniel 7, verse 13, Revelation 1, 7, both of those pretty famous references. We also see it in the Gospels, Mark 13, 26 and 27. Jesus says at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. And then Mark 14, 62, Jesus says, I am, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The clouds are often used in the Old Testament as a picture of God coming, visiting, coming in judgment and the like. We also know that clouds are part of God's presence. They were part of Jesus's departure in Acts 1-9, the pillar of cloud in Exodus 13, the clouds at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, the clouds of the tabernacle in Exodus 40, 
and the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark 9-7. So clouds are no stranger, literally and symbolically, to what we're describing here. Verse 17 also has a reference to air, which may refer to the demonic realm. Remember that Paul uses that language in Ephesians 2-2. And if so, this would imply Christ's dominion over it. Now, this is the only passage on the rapture to provide details, and there aren't many of them here either. And there are some questions on how to reconcile this with the events in Revelation 19 and citations in Revelation 17, 14, and Revelation 18, 4. But again, that's a topic that goes beyond the scope of the study here. There's even the question of how literal to take any of this. We have some flavor of symbolic language, apocalyptic language, and the like. Barclay describes all of this as poetry. He says, we are not meant to take with crude and insensitive literalism what is a seer's vision. It is not the details which are important. What is important is that in life and in death, the Christian is in Christ, and that is a union which nothing can break. So now let's move to a number of big picture comments about this passage. The first is that even though the rapture is not clearly mentioned in Revelation at all, that's not really the purpose of Revelation. If you're familiar with the book or even the chapters that are connected most directly to these questions, Revelation is mostly about the defeat of evil rather than the glorification of Christians. And so it's really an apples and oranges sort of discussion. We might expect some overlap and some connections but it should not be troubling at all not to find a big connection there with Revelation. Second, it is clear that Paul believed that the Lord's return was imminent. We see this in other passages as well. 1 Corinthians 7, 29, Paul writes, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. Philippians 4, 5, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And because of this, we can imagine how easily the Thessalonians would have been confused about Paul's anticipation and his eagerness for the return of Christ. His communication about the urgency of these things probably led to confusion about the probability of Christ's return within a few years. I think there's a tension for us as believers as well. We still look forward to the coming of Christ. And for those of us who see it as particularly soon, we have to be careful for a number of reasons because we could be wrong, for one thing, but we might actually encourage people to imagine that it's sooner than we indeed think about it. So we have to be careful. How do you have a passion being excited about Christ's return without sending the wrong signals? Third, and of apparently greatest concern to the Thessalonians, was that bringing back the dead first implies that those who are still alive will receive no greater privilege or joy. In fact, from Paul's wording here, it could be that going first could be considered a bit of a privilege or advantage, whatever that would mean. But the Thessalonians had some particular concern, misunderstanding about the ordering of events and what would happen to certain people, and Paul is obviously trying to deal with those concerns. Fourth, and related to this, Paul is pressed to emphasize the unity between all believers, past and present, with Christ. They're not separated. We think of death separating us, but death only separates us in an earthly sense. All believers are in Christ, past and present. In a way, we have more in common with them than we do with the non-Christians around us in our everyday life. But we have this tremendous unity that Paul is at pains to talk about in many other contexts. Here it's between past and present believers and their identity in Christ. 
Stott says, it is these two bitter separations which the apostle solemnly assures his readers are neither real nor permanent. Paul writes in Romans 8 along the same lines. He writes in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He doesn't bring up death at that point, but you could add it to the list. Verse 37, he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, there's the mention of it, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, another reference to time, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And especially for people who might be martyred for the faith, these questions are of utmost importance. And then finally, back to verse 18. Verses 15 through 17, Paul has given probably the most detailed stuff on the rapture and some of the most detailed stuff on the end of time in verses 15 through 17. But what's the point? Where does he go with it? That's verse 18, rereading it. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What's the point of all this if it's not going to encourage us? In other words, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage means to put courage into. And so whatever we're dealing with, our eschatology should encourage us, not inject us with fear. The point of the passage is not to provide some sort of chronology, but to encourage the Thessalonians, especially in dealing with death and grief. And so its greatest application for us is also right there. As it extends to us, we should be encouraged by these words, not going on some kind of treasure hunt to figure out the details. John Stott says here, Paul's purpose in this passage is to fortify them in their bereavement, not answer academic questions about the last things. And he quotes James Denny, who says, there's absolutely nothing in this for curiosity, though everything that is necessary for comfort. This is not about curiosity, it's about comfort and comforting the Thessalonians as new Christians who are dealing with all sorts of problems, death, grief, persecution, sexual morality, challenges on the ground, in the church, and in the world. And so the most direct application here is to encourage those who are grieving. Maybe the most prominent example in the scriptures is the book of Job, where Job's friends show up and they're silent at first. This is wonderful. They share their presence with their friend Job. And then they do try to share information and theology about God. Unfortunately, it's not very accurate and not very tactfully delivered. And so it ends up causing trouble. But Paul here is describing things that are accurate. He's doing it tactfully. And doing so would be an encouragement to the Thessalonians in their grief. Likewise, we can do the best. We can do the silence and presence of Job's friends. And then when we do share God's word tactfully with people, then it can bring hope as Paul's words have done here. The broader applications here take us back to eschatology, that when one is reading about such things, most notably in the book of Revelation, that if you're not growing closer to God, if you're not able to handle persecution better, if you're not loving other people better, all the things that are supposed to happen when you read any passage of Scripture, but particularly Scriptures that look forward to the future and living the present in light of eternity, if those passages aren't doing that for you, then you're not reading them properly at all. If your reflex is to set up a 5,000-piece puzzle and to be really excited when you think you've solved it, again, you've got the wrong 
approach to the scriptures. They're meant to encourage us and to encourage one another with these and every other word in the great and beautiful Bible that God has given us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the little hints at what the future will look like in your second coming. We pray that we would live lives of glory and honor in the present in light of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, it's time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. In the previous segment, we finished 1 Thessalonians 4. That came after 1 Thessalonians 1 through 3, the first half of this good book, where Paul was busy talking about his past visits to them and describing why he was currently absent from them, even though he wanted to be with them. Then in chapter 4, he gets around to what's up with them and their future. And so he talks first about sexual immorality and then work. They were struggling mightily with the idea of work, given their eschatological confusions. And that's his third topic. And part of that uh, is wrapped up by the end of chapter 4, but it continues into chapter 5. Paul now is going to continue to talk about what happens after death and what happens at the end of the world, but now he's moving from concerns about bereavement on earth, which was the topic in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, to judgment and glory in heaven, which will range from chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. In this segment, we're going to cover chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, that all of this is going to be a surprise to non-Christians. Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So in verse 1, Paul says there's no need to write about times and dates. Those are not something that we're going to figure out, and anyone who knows the Gospels a bit knows that to be the case, even though it's tempting for some to play the dating game. Jesus himself, Matthew 24, 36, said, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Or Jesus in his last words, Acts 1, 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. So basically Paul's saying there's no need to go into that, but he does want to talk about the day of the Lord. That's in verse 2, and this is a phrase that's used repeatedly in the Old Testament. For example, Amos 5, 18 through 20, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? And so there the prophet is calling Israel to task for mistaking that the day of the Lord was going to be good news for them. Now, this language is part of a literary type called apocalyptic. It's most famous in Revelation, but it's actually sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. Let me read a couple of examples for you. Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 13, about Babylon. The prophet writes, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make people scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Or another example from Zephaniah 1, verses 14 through 18. 
The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. And so this literature type was to promise judgment on nations of that time, to look forward to the end of the world and so on. But in each case, it's sudden. It would shake the world. It would be a time of judgment. There's a distinction between the present age and the age to come with one world shattered and another born. So that's the day of the Lord from early in verse 2. And then later in verse 2, he says that it will come like a thief in the night. So we don't know when, but we know that it's going to be sudden and it's going to be a surprise. In the night is when he is least expected. As Stott notes, the trouble with burglars is that they do not tell us when they're arriving. 2 Peter 3.10 is a great classic short exposition of this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. There are also references in Revelation chapter 3, verse 3 and 16, verse 15, that I will come like a thief, Christ referring to himself in the vision of apocalyptic to John. Jesus himself spoke at length about such things. The problem is we can't always tell which question he was answering, whether the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD or as references to his second coming. And a number of these are in the Olivet Discourse and the Synoptic Gospels references to those in Matthew 24, for example, It's a very long passage. I'm going to read the shorter passage in Mark 13, verses 32 through 37. Jesus says, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house, puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. Whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. It's very similar to much longer passages in Matthew 24 and Luke 17. I'm not going to read through those, but I do want to skim through those. So if you want to grab your Bible and follow through as I move through those quickly. In Matthew 24, he says in verse 36, again, that no one knows the time. And then he makes a number of interesting comparisons. In verses 37 to 39, it's going to be sudden like the times of Noah. Verses 40 and 41, he compares it to two men being in a field and one being taken away, two women in a mill, one being there, one being taken away. Again, it's always about the punchline, though. Verse 42, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Then he goes back to more illustrations. Verse 43, the owner is not ready for the thief. Verse 44, again, so therefore you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Then 45 through 51, to close the passage, is a master-servant parable with the servant not ready and on top of that abusing the others around him. 
And the punchline there is judgment. And again, don't find yourself in that position. Luke 17, very similar, verses 20 and 21. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. So there he's speaking about his kingdom. And as it would continue to spread to this day through the church, it's not something that can be seen easily. But then part of the confusion in such matters is he then quickly shifts gears to a related question about a different sort of kingdom and coming, starting in verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People tell you, there he is, here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. And so that was going to be obvious. So again, Jesus going back and forth. Verse 25 is about the end of the first coming in the crucifixion and the resurrection. 26 and 27, Luke here has Jesus referring to Noah, verses 28 and 29, an added reference to Lot and Sodom when it's destroyed And then again, analogies and warnings wrap up the passage from verses 30 to 35. Then back to 1 Thessalonians 5. In verse 3, he gives some phrases that provide some color. He says people will be preaching peace and safety. And what seems like calm is in fact going to be calamity. Later in verse 3, destruction will come on them suddenly. He compares it to labor pains. Interesting that this connects to the punishment for women in Genesis 3. And it's a nice comparison. The pain itself, which Jesus described in Matthew 24, its suddenness, its inevitability, and it's something outside of our control. Verse 3 says they will not escape it. So you look for signs as if it's labor, but of course there's a thing called false labor where you don't know whether it's the real thing or not. So in sum, for non-Christians, there is no warning. They can't see it given what Paul will describe in the next passage, verses 4 through 7, as their blindness It's tough enough for Christians to see it, but non-Christians have no hope and no escape. So no warning and no escape. C.S. Lewis has a classic passage on this in Mere Christianity. He writes, God is going to invade this earth in force, but what is the good of saying you're on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in? Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. And that's the challenge for non-Christians to take that choice, to make that choice, and for Christians to be encouraged about whose side they're on and to take heart in the difficulties in this life. Finally, note that Paul is not all that interested in making his case for any certain eschatological view. Again, as with John in Revelation, the purpose of this is to encourage, to unite, and to challenge non-Christians and Christians. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Purity on Friend Me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. 
Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. That's the eschatological implications of the end of time for non-Christians. Now, in the rest of the passage, verses 4 through 11, he's going to turn his focus to Christians, who should not be generally surprised, although they cannot know the dates and times. And there are still some mention of non-Christians, but that's as a point of comparison to how the Christians ought to be living. So let's read verses 4 through 11, 1 Thessalonians 5. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. So in verse 4, Christians are not to be in darkness, so that this day should surprise you. That's for the Thessalonians and for us. Luke has Jesus telling Paul in Acts 26, verses 17 and 18, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. And part of that move into the light is that we would not be so surprised by this day. Now, again, it can't be specific knowledge because we've also been told we can't know the dates or times, but the general surprise should not be present. Verse 5, Paul goes on to describe the sons of the light and the day versus those who belong to the darkness. In Ephesians 5.8, he puts it this way, For you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord live as children of light. Or Colossians 1, 12 and 13, he describes us as those who share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So the sons of should be characterized by the things of their father. What does that mean here? Well, the light represents many things, warmth, the ability to grow, honesty rather than secrecy, being less fearful, more knowledgeable, and so on. Paul here is harnessing the power of the metaphor of light and how Christians should walk in that light. Verse 6, he continues that call to be alert and self-controlled or sober. 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12 says, What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. In contrast, non-Christians are asleep. Now, you may remember that we had the word sleep pretty famously back in chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. That's actually a different Greek word than is being used here and throughout chapter 5. In chapter 4, sleep, the Greek word there, was used as a euphemism for Christians dying. Here, sleep is a state in which non-Christians on earth are in, that they're asleep they're in the darkness, and so on. It implies lethargy, apathy, and fantasies, none of which are attractive options for them or certainly for Christians, that we should not follow them in the same ways now that we are children of the light. We should be alert and self-controlled rather than asleep and all that goes with it. Neither sleeping, which is being unaware, dreaming, which is unrealistic, 
uh, are neither of those are good pictures of trying to discern reality. And so often non-Christians have a clouded or blinded view of such things. The word sober for Christians doesn't mean boring, but it does mean intentional. It means there's a time for joy, but there's a time for seriousness that we plan, strategize, act with intention, and so on as officers in God's kingdom. Verse 7 has that word sleep again and talks about as well getting drunk at night. Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse portion that's worth reading here is verses 32 through 36. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Notice there again that Jesus is talking about, for sure, 70 AD and the destruction of the temple, what is about to happen, but it'd be very easy to imagine he was talking about the second coming. And then the even larger concern is that one would be able to stand before the Son of Man in terms of judgment, and that's only by embracing, uh, by faith, the grace of and the goodness of God. Again, Paul uses this by way of contrast. The pagans sleep and get drunk at night. Instead, verse 8, since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, again that word, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. A number of interesting little things here. It's interesting that faith and love go together in protecting the heart as a breastplate and that hope protects the head serving as a helmet. With respect to armor, there's a number of verses here. Romans 13, 12, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Of course, Ephesians 6 is the most famous passage in this regard. But Paul is quite fond of references to weapons, fighting, soldiers, and so on. Think of passages like 2 Corinthians 6, 7, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, 1 Timothy 6, 12, 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, and 2 Timothy 4, 7. If we go back to Paul's analogy of the thief in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 5, there are two problems. He comes unexpectedly and the homeowner is asleep. Now, we can't control the first. We don't control when the thief shows up in the analogy, but we can prepare for the second. We can be ready. And so there we have the pictures of light and dark and the differences between being alert and sober rather than asleep and drunk. Stott says, the solution to our problem lies not in knowing when he will come, but in staying awake and alert, even if his parousia, his coming, is totally unexpected, we will still be ready for him. Along the same lines, there's a sense in which if we knew Jesus was coming tomorrow, if we knew we would die on Tuesday, then we would do things differently. But there's a line attributed to Martin Luther that said, if the Lord was coming tomorrow, I'd plant a tree today. And at some level, it doesn't make any sense at all. But at another level, I think Luther was getting to the the same idea that we act every day as if Jesus is coming. We're doing the things we ought to be doing every day so that we are alert and sober rather than asleep and drunk. In verse 8, he talks about faith, love, and hope, big trinity there, based on verse 9's statement that God did not appoint us to suffer wrath 
for our sin could be a reference to a capital T tribulation at the end of time, but in context, more likely seems to refer to the, the judgment that we have to undergo. Are we under the grace of God or not? Here he talks about receiving salvation through Christ, so that seems to be the context here. The word appoint gets us in the mood to think about predestination and the prevenient grace of God, that it's by grace that we can even accept the grace of God. We're all elected, chosen, appointed, predestined. And then verse 10, Christ died for us, whether we are alive or asleep. Coming out of chapter 4, we might have imagined that alive or asleep was talking about Christians who are alive or have already passed, but this is the same Greek word that Paul has been using in chapter 5, referring to non-Christians. And so the proper interpretation is that alive or asleep is referring to spiritually alive or spiritually lethargic as Christians, those who are living like pagans. And that's interesting because that means that Christ died for them as well. Then finally, in verse 11, Paul writes that this is to encourage one another and build each other up. Same thing he did in 1 Thessalonians 4.18 to finish that part of the passage where he wrote, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then it's very much like Romans 14.19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and a mutual edification, just as they've been doing. So again, a call to continue and to expand, to go deeper and wider with the love that they had expressed to Christians and non-Christians as Paul had encouraged them to do, and by extension, it's God encourages us to do as we read a passage like this. Okay, let's start into the last part of 1 Thessalonians, and that runs from chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. In verses 12 through 22, he gives a series of instructions before his closing six verses in 23 through 28. This is part three of his exhortation in this book. And the style is interesting. Walvoord and Zook say his cryptic, almost abrupt style in this section may have been intended to bring them back from considerations of the future to the realities of their immediate responsibilities. We'll notice that a lot of this is in sort of a staccato, short, terse statements. On the substance of it, it seems to be more a stream of consciousness and a general top 10 list commentators debate on the extent to which Paul is dealing with particular problems or if he's just giving more universal things that every church should do. Stott says here, Paul cherished high ideals for the Christian church and community. Such a community could justly be called a gospel church, both because it had been brought into being by the gospel and because it is continuously shaped by the gospel. It's also a portrait of the family of God. He'll use the word brother five times from here to the end. He has used words like Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. And again, the idea of encouragement we saw in chapter 4, verse 18, and chapter 5, verse 11, that is at the end of the previous passage that sets the table for these closing remarks. Barclay describes this section this way, that Paul comes to an end with a chain of jewels of good advice. So verses 12 and 13, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Reminiscent of Hebrews 13, 17, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. The comments here are probably spurred by word that the leaders were being somewhat autocratic and or some lay people were being disrespectful. Words like respect, holding the highest regard, in love, those who stand before you, 
in the Lord would center them on the proper conduct here. Church leaders are hard workers, those with godly authority, those who admonish, and obviously, therefore, those who are certainly worthy of respect. He lists responsibilities for both the pastors and their flock, but his focus is the flock to the pastor, the emphasis on respect and love. Barclay says the reason for the respect is the work they are doing. It is not a question of personal prestige. It is the task which makes a man great, and it is the service he is, and it is the service he is doing, which is his badge of honor. And then finally, verse 13, live in peace with each other. He admonishes them on this in verse 12, and it's meant in general, but especially in context with respect to church leaders, dissension is not an option, and with respect to lay people, admonishing them in truth and grace. Okay, we'll have to leave it there for today. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet. <music>